Hello and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I and I Think You're Interesting. I've been a TV critic for a while now and my sort of my relationship to TV comedy is this. I'll watch the first season and be like really excited about what this show could be. I'll get to season two. I'll be like, wow, this is a great show. I'll get to season three. I'll be like, yeah, this is, this is a really good show. And then in season four, like I figure out how the jokes work and I just, I, I stop watching because... I, I can predict the punchlines and stuff. A show that has not done that for me, though, is the FXX animated comedy Archer, which is in its eighth season. Every season, they do something a little bit different now. The characters are so well-drawn and so richly written and so funny. And so I thought it'd be great to have somebody from the show come in. And I'm going to be talking to Chris Parnell. He plays Cyril Figgis. He's also on Rick and Morty, where he plays Jerry. He was on Saturday Night Live. He was on Suburgatory and 30 Rock and all of these wonderful things. We're going to talk about all of those things, plus some other stuff as well. So let's uh, go talk to Chris. Chris, great to have you here. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me, Todd. So I'm going to sort of fill in the folks who maybe haven't seen Archer or haven't kept up with it or whatever. Every season recently has been sort of a different spin on the basic concept of this show about uh, this guy who was a secret agent and then was sort of a PI, and now it's a 1940s riff, uh, sort of a sort of a film noir thing. As you've gone through all those iterations of your character Cyril, have you thought of him uh, not as a different person, but have you thought of seeing like different facets of him each season? Well, not necessarily each season, but I, I've definitely you know seen different sides of him, and I, I guess you know I've I've learned things about him um, with with Adam Reed's writing. You know, I, I try to never make too many assumptions about the character um, just because I don't know where he's going to take him. So mm-hmm. I, I really just use what the words are on the, on the page. Um, this season, certainly Cyril is, is, a, is a darker guy. Um, and I'm always, <laughs> I guess I'm a little disappointed when Cyril goes that direction. I want to mm-hmm. see Cyril do right and make the right choices, but it's, that's not always the most interesting thing. So mm-hmm. it's fun too. And it's fun being a quote, bad guy. <laughs> um, uh, but but yeah, you know, it's it's every every season something a little different. Uh, what what I've been fascinated by this season is it is like a like it is a pretty good film noir. Like it's a good detective story in addition to being a very funny show that we know it to be. Do you enjoy that sort of thing? Do you enjoy that genre that that world? Uh, I do enjoy it. It's not something I I delve into myself, but it's certainly a fun world to watch and mm-hmm. and be in or feel like I'm in. <laughs> yeah. Has there been a season where you feel like? you've learned the most about Cyril or the character has has most come into focus for you from some situation he's been put in? Well, it was it was um, a couple of things. I, I don't think it was the same episode. Maybe it was where he got to be uh, an agent mm-hmm. and got to go out in the field and actually, um, you know, did pretty well. And then he, when he got to be the dictator of the country. Um, so I think anytime Cyril acquires more power or responsibility, that is appealing <laughs> to me. I don't know what that says. Um, one thing you, you mentioned is that the character has kind of gone in a darker direction this season. And one of the things I sort of, this character and Jerry on Rick and Morty are pretty different, but at the same time, they're both normal guys who have like these really dark hearts. What do you think makes that a Chris Parnell part? Like why, why is that? Why does that seem to happen to your characters? Um, well, I don't know if I'd say Jerry has such a dark heart. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But, uh, I mean, I do think they're both, they have a certain level of pathetic about them um, that I guess I relate to, uh, for better or for worse. Um, (laughs) I don't, you know, that's just, it's just an easy place to go to, I think, comedically for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, you know, the the sad truth is I guess I relate to it on some level. Um, And not, not that I, you know, not to not to really beat myself up, but you know, it's, I've, I've had, I've got a great life. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm not going to kid anybody, but you know, I haven't, you know, I wasn't like the most popular kid in high school. Like most of us weren't, you know, and all that jazz. So it's, it's, it's not hard to relate to that, you Mm. know? Mm. Yeah. What, when you were, when you were sort of, when you were in that high school world, how did you discover comedy? How did you find that? Uh, was that when you found it or was it a little later on? No, it was in high school. Um, I, I was super lucky in that I went to a high school that had a, a truly amazing theater program. I mean, it was nationally recognized. We were on a Rockefeller Brothers grant. We were visited by the People's Republic of China. They visited like 10 schools to look at their <laughs> arts programs, and ours was one of them. Mm. Um, and we had this amazing teacher, Frank Bluestein, and this musical teacher, Sarah Savelle. And we did these great shows. And um, my senior year, we did a play called Greater Tuna, mm-hmm. I and my friend Dan McCleary, sure, sure. where we have to play like 10 roles each. And uh, and that was my first kind of foray into comedy, and it, and it went pretty well, you know, and audiences really responded to us. And then it, when I went to college at, at North Carolina School of the Arts, it seemed like that's what I was excelling in. You mm-hmm. know, that's what I was getting the most feedback about and response from. So I was like, oh... And then I looked back on my life and I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I was always trying to get people to laugh, mm-hmm. generally unsuccessfully, let's mm-hmm. be clear. But I was trying to be a class clown and all of that. So it wasn't until I found the theater department at my school that I was like, oh, this is where I'm supposed to be. Right, right. Now, I assume you were not doing just comedic shows like you were doing other other things as well. Was Do you have like particular uh, shows you remember that maybe weren't in the comedic vein that you were really proud of being in or enjoyed doing at the time? Yeah, I mean, we did some uh, – well, we did, a, we did a play, a drama called The Diviners by Jim Leonard Jr. Um, that was my sort of breakout role, if you will. It was my, Mr. Bluestein, I still call him Mr. Bluestein, had planned to give the part to an older student. But something about it just clicked for me, and I was able to bring a certain, you know, naturalness and realism to it. Um, and so that was really, that was an important moment for me in my life as an actor, you know. Right. Um, but we also did a lot of musicals that were really good you know mm-hmm. like we we went to the international thespian conference in muncie indiana and did the opening night performance with joseph in the amazing technicolor dream coat mm-hmm. um which was uh which was a blast i mean we were we were we were pretty good you mm-hmm. know you've used some of your musical gifts in some of your roles before uh is that, is that a thing that you you miss doing do you like singing and dancing and all that well, you know, it's it's fun to do for the sake of comedy. Sure. Um, I, I'm not a legit singer. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, you know, I don't have the real chops like some of my peers, like say Anana Gasteyer does, you mm-hmm. know, but um, or Maya. But it's it's fun to do. It's fun to do as long as I'm not uh, trying to do it say, hey, look at how good I am. It's mm-hmm. when there's an understanding that this is for the sake of comedy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I found that folks that get into comedy, uh, especially sketch, tend to be from, you know, either some of them are from stand up, but a lot of them tend to come from that world of theater, that world of, you know, stage training. What is it that you think that stage training brings to being a sketch or improv comedian? Well, you know, the way I started in in high school, besides doing the plays, is we would go to all these speech tournaments. Mm -hmm. And I would participate in an event called duet acting. So it would be me and a fellow student doing about a seven minute. I think seven minute scene from a play. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
and we just would do that like almost every weekend. We would go to a different school and do these speech tournaments or every other weekend. And, and that for me was a great sort of learning experience, just getting up in front of people and doing that over and over again. And in a way, they were, you know, kind of like little sketches. And, you know, and, and having the background of, of acting and coming at it from that way, I found very helpful for me when I got to even the groundlings, you right. know, and having having an acting background and then learning the improv stuff on top of that and then starting to write stuff. And just so many of the people that, that came in there and probably still do don't have an acting background. They're just like, I want to try this thing, which is great, and they yeah. should. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just felt that that kind of gave me a leg up. Right, right. As you were working at, at the groundlings, um, obviously that was a hugely foundational group, still is. Uh, what yeah. what did you learn there that, that you've most carried forward into your career even now? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, on a certain level, to believe in myself comedically um, <laughs> and to be willing to take chances and, you know, to look, be willing to look dumb and stupid and um, not have too much pride, hopefully, about, you know, the way you're coming across. Mm-hmm. Um, willingness to, to, to be an ass on stage mm. um, as much as is required, I guess. But, uh, you know, when I think back to those early groundling days, I was I was so young and so hungry, you know, and there was so much writing involved once you get into the, the, the writing lab and advanced and then the Sunday shows, so much writing and always trying to come up with ideas. And, and it was just, it was such a great time, you know, mm. it was just like a master's program, you know, like I'd been to college, had a great college experience, more or less. And then did this, and that was like kind of another college thing. And then I got really lucky and got to go to SNL, which is like another extension of college in a way, you know, just a perpetuation of, of situations that allow me to not feel fully grown up. You yeah. Know? Yeah. You mentioned uh, being willing to look like an ass for, for the sake of comedy. Uh, and when I, you know, I was in, when I was in college, I tried some, some improv stuff and just was never able to get past my own vanity. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. And I'm wondering what was like the, how did you sort of learn to push past that? Or was it just a natural thing for you to be able to do that? Well, you know, it's one of the things we did in, in, in college was we would do these exercises our freshman year where we would like stand in two rows facing each other. And the the object of it was to make a stupid sound and a stupid gesture and a movement, mm-hmm. just ridiculous, and just do that over and over in front of each other, you know, without any inhibitions. And, and that, was, that, that was hard at first, you know. And then after you do it for a while, you're like, oh, okay, this mm-hmm. is, everybody's doing this. It's okay. It's okay to look ridiculous. And there's there's no loss in that, you yeah. know? And yeah. I think I think for me, that was that was what really helped me in that way. Oh, excellent. Uh, one thing that I, I talked to Phil Lamar a couple of weeks oh, ago, yeah. and he came out of Mad TV. Uh, you, you've done a lot of sketch groundlings, SNL, things like that. Uh, and you're both like really having successful voice careers now. And I notice a lot of people who work in sketch go on to do a lot of voice acting. What is it that seems to create that Venn diagram? Do you have like a theory for that? Or? <laughs> um, I wish I did. I mean, I don't know. I think I think with Sketch, you know, um, with Matt or with SNL, there's an expectation that you are going to bring a, a variety of, of personas to the work. You know, mm-hmm. you got to play a lot of different characters and make a lot of choices. And with voiceover, you know, that tends to be the same thing. You're just mm-hmm. doing it with your voice instead of, the, you know, your, your whole body. Um, 
so I, I guess I guess that would be my my take on it. You know, you just hopefully you've brought some versatility to the table because that's the thing that uh, you know the best voiceover actors have is that kind of versatility. It feels amazing. Um, I feel like I actually have less than the people who are really good at it. You know, like a Tom Kenny or somebody. But right, uh, Jerry and uh, Cyril, of course, sound very similar, but they're also obviously very like I can tell you're playing them differently, and I don't know. I don't know enough about acting to say, like, how you're doing that. It's the same with, like, uh, H. John Benjamin and uh, doing Archer and then Bob on Bob's Burgers. Right. How do you approach those two characters when, like, the only thing you have is your voice and yet you need to make them divergent? Well, you know, sometimes I I still do have to listen to myself doing the different parts just to make sure I'm clear on what I'm doing. But, yeah, obviously they're not big leaps from what my normal voice is. But I guess it, it sort of comes from just— I like to think it comes from the, the who the character is, you know, mm-hmm. and so that naturally this character has a different energy and different motivations, and so they're going to talk in a different way. And then a lot of it, frankly, is just the lines, you know. The lines shape the character so much that's, mm-hmm. you know, if, without that, the character is nothing. So when I'm saying these lines, you know, I could say Jerry's lines as Cyril, and they wouldn't sound quite right, right. you know, um, and vice versa. But, yeah, I think I think the— the way, because they're both so well-written, I mean, that yeah. makes such a difference. Yeah, I mean, and you're working with Adam Reed and then uh, Dan Harmon and Justin Roiland, who really are like TV auteurs. Like, Adam Reed writes basically every episode oh, of yeah. Archer. Um, when you, have you turned to them with like questions and like, con- or not even concerns, but just like things you want to know about the characters and they've given you like deeply <laughs> written backstories? <laughs> um, no, I haven't. I mm-hmm. never have. Um because I, I feel like as as an actor, my job is to take the work, they, take the script that they've written for me and to bring that to life as, mm-hmm. as well as I can. And that they will, knowing that they or, or somebody else on their team will direct me to get it to where they want it to be. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with asking the writer about what they intended. I've certainly done that on like sitcoms and things when I'm not clear. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just, uh, I'm super wary of being the actor who has issues or has notes about their character or has, you know, things they want to come in with that they think need to be fixed or could be better or any of that kind of thing, you know. Right. Um, and, 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 you know, again, I'm not saying that's ever wrong. Sometimes that's, that's justified, but um, I'm just sort of, I'm scared of being that guy, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, what have you, you've lived with Cyril now for eight years. Uh, what have you most learned about him in that time? What, like, what have you been most surprised by or most uh, impressed by uh, getting to know him over that time? Most impressed by? Well, I guess, I guess his ability to adapt and um, his skills um, when it comes to having to rise to the occasion of being an agent or be a dictator. Um, he's got <laughs> this wellspring of, of ability inside him. And at the same time, he, he also has... Um, a good heart for the most part in, in past seasons, certainly, I think. But his, you know, his his moral foundations are shaky at mm-hmm. best. You know, mm-hmm. he's he's a little amoral. And certainly in this season, he's 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 a bad guy. I was looking at your, your filmography a little bit. And even before uh, you landed on SNL, you were taking interesting roles in like interesting shows or interesting films. Uh, what draws you to a part? Like what what uh, what are you looking for when you're uh, trying to find something to play? Well, 
I mean, honestly, it's a little different now than it was then, because then I was basically just taking whatever yeah. came. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, but job. You had, you had very good luck. Yes, so. <laughs> absolutely. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to have a job. Um, now I'm, de- I'm definitely a lot more selective. Um, you know, I, I don't want to do something that, I mean, it sounds so lame, but it's like, I, you know, I've come to realize that my comedy is a sort of a brand, you know, mm-hmm. for me. And um, I hate to use that kind of language, but I, that is kind of how I think of it. And um I don't want to limit myself, certainly, and I want to feel like I can still do a variety of things as an actor. Um, but if I'm called on to do something that feels like just wrong or uncomfortable, like I tend to, uh, I tend to get skittish if if like a leading man part comes my way, which is extremely rare. Let's be clear. Right. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I just don't, I don't ever feel super confident in that in that vein, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm saying I'm sort of, sort of sending mixed messages here. I'm saying different things, but uh, you know, I just I I, tr- I try to do stuff that resonates with me that I think is funny. At the mm-hmm. end of the day, you know, that I think is funny. Um, but also, if it's a if it's a big enough paycheck, I'll probably do it anyway, mm. um, even if it's not the funniest thing. Mm. Um, but that that you know that doesn't happen too often anymore. So, and also, I'm 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 very lucky in that I don't have to take you know, jobs that I don't want to. Yeah. Do you, uh, who were some folks when you were coming up that you were learning a lot from uh, maybe people you worked with, but also maybe just people you watched who you were like, they're great. I want to be more like them. Well, you know, certainly, uh, you know, I was watching SNL from at least the second season on as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, if not maybe the first season too. And Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd, huge influences, just love those guys so much. Um, Phil Hartman, Chris Farley, huge. And then later on, Will Ferrell, you know, honestly, I mean, still one of my comedy idols, really. He's, he's just amazing. Um, Steve Carell, Mm. I think is amazing. Um, so these are, these are guys who do a type of comedy that I relate to. Um, I, I don't think I'm in the same league as they are, but I aspire to be. And also, you know, having gotten to meet Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray, which was so cool. They hosted SNL while I was on there, and that was that was really cool. Mm. Um, and then, of course, having got, gotten to work with, with Will and Steve, um, they're such good guys, you know. They're just such good people. And, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's the kind of thing that I aspire to. What, what, is, what is it you said that you, they kind of do the kind of comedy that, that you're looking for? What, uh, what is it that you see in them that makes you laugh? You know, it's, it's, it's grounded in reality, you know, it's, it's, it's acted well. Um, um, it can be very broad, um, but it still is based in a certain humanity that you can relate to. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think they're, I think for Steve and Will, especially their, their goodness as people comes through what they do, um, even though they don't always play good characters, but, um, it's certainly with a comedy, you Mm -hmm. know, I feel like that, they're, they're just so likable as people, mm. and, and that comes across. And, and I strive to be likable. <laughs> I, I don't. Um, I, you know, we all want to be liked, especially probably insecure actors. But, yeah, I, I don't it's, – it's, it's based in a certain reality, and it's, it's just got a certain energy and a certain take to it that I, I love and makes me laugh. One, I think that one of the things I, I love about Steve Carell and Will Ferrell and, and, and yourself is you're all really good actors – and in, in like, in addition to being funny, like, like the acting almost in some ways comes first and then the funny gets layered on top That's of very that. Very kind. I, Thank you. I think a lot of people would think of it happening in the reverse, you know, <laughs> like we're funny and then we do some acting. Right. Um, what do you think the importance of 
a good performance is to making people laugh? I think it's I think it's pretty huge. You know, w- when you're doing sketch, when you're doing SNL or something like that, you can get away with a lot because it's live and it's, you know, it's kind of feels like it's off the cuff, even though it's all very rehearsed and the shots are all set up and it's very scripted. But, you know, for me, it's it's really committing to the part, you know. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that, that always made Chris Farley so amazing to me is his level of commitment to his mm-hmm. characters and just how far he would go and it just it just killed me it just i mean amazing and and the same with the same with will and and steve carell um when when it's based in something that feels real you know and then the character comes out of that it's like okay you're watching somebody that feels believable do this crazy thing or say this ridiculous thing you know Mm -hmm. as opposed to somebody that well i know they're acting or i'm not kind of really fully buying into this you know yeah yeah I was reading a thing with, uh, I think Tina Fey said this about you, that she was said that you were very good at not breaking, basically, when you were in the middle of a sketch. Even like uh, the no cowbell sketch, uh, you were not breaking. <laughs> like right. You were yeah. one of the few people. Where What do you draw on to be able to like withstand in a situation like that and just, just uh, be sort of uh, just sort of cool and collected? Well, I, just, I mean, this sounds kind of lame, but just, I, you know, I really try to be in the moment as, as an actor. You know, I just try to be there as that character mm-hmm. would be. And to that character, it's, it's not funny. You know, they're there in the moment saying these lines in the situation. And it's not funny to them. It's mm-hmm. like they're really into it. They're really invested in it. You know, like Cowbell, they're really trying to record this track and it's important to them. And Do you remember a time since SNL is live? Do you remember a time when uh, you were just like, oh, my God, this is like like things seem like they were turning disastrous uh, as you were out there performing. And then they sort of flipped around at the last second or maybe didn't. Maybe they fell apart completely. I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know if I remember a, a flipping situation happen, happening. Usually if something starts feeling <laughs> terrible, it stays that way through the bitter end. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a scene, a dress rehearsal that, that Anna and Horatio and Will Farrell and I, maybe somebody else wrote. It was a morning zoo crew <laughs> radio station. And, uh, and we wrote the thing and we were just killing each other. It was so hilarious. And we read it at the table read on Wednesday. It killed. People mm-hmm. loved it. They were dying. We did it at dress rehearsal and it was crickets. You know, mm-hmm. it was just dead in the water. Nobody responded at all. So that at the end we were like, oh my God, we had to laugh about how terribly it went. And of course it didn't make it to air. <laughs> uh, you mentioned, you, you, of course you did a lot of writing in Groundlings, SNL, things like that. Do you still... Uh, try writing? Do you still like to write? And and how did your writing and, and performance sort of inform each other at that time? Well, um, in answer to your first question, I do not. Mm-hmm. I have not written anything really since since SNL. Mm-hmm. Um, partly because I'm lazy. Um, partly because there's so many people that do it so much better than I do. Um, and also, I, frankly, I don't have like some great idea that I want to get out there to the world, you mm-hmm. know? Um but a lot of it's just laziness. <laughs> um, I aspire to write mm. one day and create something, but I don't know if that'll ever happen. Um, and then in terms of the, like with the Groundlings, especially the way that informed what I did and, and at SNL is, is you can create this character and what they say and all of that. So, right. you know, it's, um, I felt like my strongest writing sort of came from me just doing it, you know, improvising it with myself and just sort of what would this guy say and being in the moment and writing it and, you know, that kind of thing. 
Sketches is really hard to write because you have like five to seven minutes to create like a whole world and a story and characters. Are there sketches, either ones that you've been involved with or ones that you've just seen that you feel like attain that really well uh, and that you sort of look to as examples of like what you were trying to do? I mean, you know, Cal Bell, of course, mm-hmm. who's one of the greats. Um, Tina's sketch, Colonel Angus, was, was pretty fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, there have been so many. I, uh, a Matt Foley motivational speaker. Um, but yeah, it's really, it's, it's, they're a really hard thing to write. And I never, in all my time at SNL, felt like I had learned that skill. Mm-hmm. Whenever I wrote anything that got on the show, it was me writing with somebody else, right. writing with one of the writers that I tended to sort of click with. Um, and in that, in, in that environment, when I had somebody who really kind of knew what they were doing, I could bring a lot to it, I like to think, and bring a lot of comedy and ideas and stuff. But in terms of just sitting down by myself and writing a, a great sketch, I, I never got there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when you left SNL, it was not necessarily on your own terms. But when I've heard you talk about it or read interviews with you speaking about it, um, you don't seem angry or bitter or anything like that. I don't know your own feelings, like maybe deep down you secretly are. But like you've been very good about you know, making it uh, not personal in some ways. Is that, and you've come back to the show in various guest spots over the years. Is that, has that kind of been your guiding philosophy over over approaching career questions like that? Um, in terms of not being like bitter or angry yeah, about stuff? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, on a certain level, it's just common sense, you know. I mean, just, you know, you, you people want to work with people that are easy to work with and that mm-hmm. are nice, you mm-hmm. know, and pleasant and, 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 and you know, a pleasure to be around, hopefully. And I, you know, I've seen actors, you know, none of whom I will name, but through throughout my time that they're so talented, they're so good, but yet they're so hard to work with. And mm. and at a certain point, you know, the the world of people who are making content and stuff says, eh, it's not, it's not really worth it to me. I don't, I don't want to put up with what that person, mm-hmm. the baggage that person brings with them. Um, in terms of SNL, I mean, when I was first fired after three seasons, <laughs> I was, you know, I was devastated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was really disappointed and really just bewildered. And, you know, I've said this all before, but there was a big outpouring of support from the cast and the writers. And um, and I think I think Will and, and Catan went to bat for me, apparently to Lorne. And, and always there was this word that the door wasn't completely shut mm-hmm. until finally, eventually, you know, they did bring me back. Mm-hmm. And so then I was there for a few more seasons, which I was extraordinarily happy about. And uh, and then when they let me go the second time, they they put the ball in in, in my court. They gave me the opportunity to say, um, you know what, I'm I'm done. I'm good. But I couldn't do it because it's you know it's a gig and it's a great game. It's Saturday Night Live, and yeah. by that time I was making a pretty decent paycheck. And mm. I'm not going to walk away from this if you'll have me. Mm. And they said, "Man, I don't think we'll have you." <laughs> but I left with Horatio and Rachel Dratch, so I felt like I was in pretty damn good company. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and you had said you were sort of in other interviews. You've said you were sort of nearing the end of how, how long you wanted to be there in some ways. So yeah. it was. Do you now past that? Do you look back and have? Because it was such, it's such a punishing show in some ways. Like it's such a such a hard thing to do that show when it's in a show week. Do you look back and have nostalgia for that, or or, or are you as you get older like Ugh, I'd never want to do that again? Well, it's both. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm nostalgic for that time in my life. I I loved it. It was amazing. I, I mean, and what I realize is I get older and, and I'm further away from it. Just how lucky I am to mm-hmm. have 
had that in my past and who've been have been a part of that. Um, to met those people and and created those friendships and just had that experience. I mean, it's it's you know it's a part of TV history. Um, I, I would not want to go back and do it again. <laughs> um, I've even thought, and and I don't believe me, I don't I don't think they're knocking going to be knocking on my door anytime soon to host. But if if I ever you know found myself in a career place where they wanted me to. I'm sure I would, but it's like I would I would have I would be a little skittish about it at the same time just because I know what it is, you know, and it's 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 scary. The thing I, I guess you, you didn't ask this, I don't think, but the thing that I regret the most about my time on the show is that I wasn't hungrier while I was there. I wasn't not hungrier that I wasn't braver. Right. That I wasn't ballsier and not that I wasn't more confident um, because a lack of confidence, I think, kept me from doing more than I, th- I think I could have done. I mm. remember talking to Will Ferrell because um, we shared an office our first year with a with a writer named Jerry Collins. And I remember asking Will um, during my first season, hey, so so did it, I mean, did it take you kind of a while to get the ball rolling and, you know, kind of get up to speed and all this? And he's like, no, mm. I just, I came in running on the ground, just going full, full ahead and which he did. And he was right. Mm. And, I, you know, I was hoping for some sort of like, no, no, it took me a while too, man, you know, but he just was honest. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I, I certainly didn't do that like he did. Yeah, yeah. When I talk to people who were, were on that show, they always have a different part of the process that they were, they least liked. In that when you were doing a show week, like what was the part where you were like, oh, this is, I, I just got to get past this and then I can get back to the stuff I enjoy? Well, it was, it was writing night, really. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if I had an idea and a plan, or hopefully a few ideas, and a plan to write with somebody, mm-hmm. um, then that was good. And and the writing of it could be a blast. It could be fantastic. But on those writing nights where I didn't have a great idea or we didn't, you know, di- I didn't have the a kind of a plan or I, the plan didn't feel solid, it was a terrible feeling. Mm-hmm. It was just awful. It was just like, oh, God. And then everybody around you is writing great scenes, you know, and being productive and you're eating candy in the writer's room and just wallowing around searching the internet, trying to sadly, pathetically write some scene on your own and mm. just, oh, it's awful. <laughs> <laughs> you've, uh, you've worked with, uh, you've worked with folks like Tina and Will again on, on later projects and as their stars have risen, how do you see them like Will Ferrell's one of the biggest movie stars in the world. Like, oh, yeah. how, how do you look at it? Like, do, has he changed at all from that process? Or? I don't think he has. I mean, if anything, he's just um, he just keeps you know sort of taking more chances. I mm-hmm. mean, he just sort of he just kept growing, mm-hmm. you know, as a, as an actor, as a com- comedic actor and a writer. I mean, mm-hmm. he's such a good writer, and obviously Tina's such a good writer and per- and performer and actor. Um, yeah, I mean, they're also two people who work really hard, you know. I, I'm sure Will does too, but Tina, I know, is, is a really hard worker. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, it's gotten her where she is. And, and that, and she's effing brilliant, yeah. you know, um, as is Will. And also they just, you know, they have a they have a certain star quality, let's mm-hmm. be honest, mm-hmm. you know, that, that draw people to them. We've talked about, uh, you've talked about how you're drawn to good writing, good comedy writing. How do you... And, and Tina Fey is one of the great comedy writers. How do you know that when you see it? Like, as, a, as an actor, what stands out to you about a well-written script or a great comedic script? Because uh, you've been involved with a lot of them now, so. Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't think I'm, I'm smart enough to really say what it is about it. It's, or, or to break that down other than, I mean, if it makes me laugh, mm. that's, that's an obvious way. But, you know, 
I recently got a script from a friend of a friend of a friend and they wanted me to do a cameo in it. And, uh, and you know, on the one hand, I was like, oh, I want to help out. But then I just started to read it and it was just like, oh, you know, it just the, the quality of the humor was kind of potty humor. And mm. it was just it just wasn't elevated. It wasn't smart. It didn't feel smart. And when you've gotten to do 30 Rock and Rick and Morty mm-hmm. and Archer and, you know, these amazing shows that are so well written, you know, mm-hmm. you, you just see that. You feel it on the page, you know. And uh, I can't necessarily analyze what's so great about it except to say that it's, that it's smart, the jokes work, um, and it's wildly imaginative, you know. Yeah. yeah. We're all fans of something, me, and you're going to say, wow, this is this is the most typical thing ever for you, Vanderwerf. I'm a fan of newspaper comic strips. I love looking back at things like Peanuts, Calvin and Hobbes, some of those, those great old strips, and, like, I have lots of books of them. I have lots of, like, figurines from some of my favorites. It's it's kind of a weird thing, but it, it's, it's what I'm into. But with everything changing about the way we consume culture, the nature of fandom is changing, too. So I want to tell you about an awesome new podcast about exactly that change. It's called Fan Club, and it's about why we love what we love. In each episode, you'll hear from amazing, brilliant people across the pop culture landscape, musicians, artists, fashion designers, chefs, even scientists, about how their work is being experienced today and how they think it will be experienced in the future. Guests include Charlemagne the God, Tom Colicchio, and many, many more. Subscribe to Fan Club now at vbyviacom.com slash fan club. Again, that's vbyviacom.com slash fan club or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're living in a time right now where people are constantly asking what comedy's responsibility is to the world at large, to the political world, things like that. Obviously, Archer and Rick and Morty, because of production schedule, like are not going to suddenly do a Donald Trump episode or something <laughs> right. like that. But do you have feelings on that? Do you have feelings on like what comedy should be saying about, you know— the world about the world situation or about politics. Yeah, I absolutely. I think I think they it absolutely should be commenting on it. And I've been especially proud of Saturday Night Live this season um, with the way they've handled Trump, the Trump White House, and mm-hmm. Sean Spicer and all of that, and 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 Alec Baldwin's impression and just uh, that they play Steve Bannon as you know the angel of death, you know, or the Grim Reaper. I guess it would be. Um, I just love that. I, it's no holds barred, you know. I mean, on a certain on a certain level, SNL has always tried to, you know, sort of play both sides, not just be wildly liberal, but also, you know, give a nod to the, you know, conservative things because some of the writers there, you know, can be conservative. Um, but I, I love the way they've they've approached this because it is just so insanely off the rails, you know, mm. Um, mm. with with our new president. Um, yeah. And yeah, that deserves to be made fun of and commented on and mocked and ridiculed <laughs> as mm-hmm. much as it, you know, as it can be. I feel like uh, we're recording this toward the end of Trump's first 100 days, and it feels to me like there's been sort of a shift from people saying, God, what can Hollywood say about this moment, to, oh, okay, we can say a lot of things <laughs> yeah. about this moment. And to me, like, comedy sort of led the way in that, like like shows like SNL, but also some of the late-night hosts were, you know, uh, instrumental in that. And, w- like, what is the power of of poking a hole in that balloon through jokes. Well, I mean, the fact that we can do it at all is huge, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the First Amendment and, and that sort of thing. Um, the fact that there's nobody censoring that, you know, is, is, is the big first thing. And then, you know, when 
people are seeing something and and even if they like Trump, you know, but the late night host, Seth or whoever says something that, that makes me laugh about it, you know, you know, you start to you start to you can come around a little bit, you know, you start to see it from the other side, maybe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's 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 the same way with as a liberal myself, if somebody, you know, mocks liberals in a certain way and from a conservative point of view, you know, I can sort of say, oh, yeah, OK, OK, I get that. I get that, you know. Sure, um, sure. It'll, it'll, it's, it's, a, it's sort of a, it's a backdoor to allowing you to see the other side, I think, in a way. Sometimes, and it's also just like, hey, isn't this ridiculous? Like, this is, this is effing ridiculous right here. Look, and we're going to say it is. We're going to hit it head on. And um, you don't have to like it, but, but it, you know, here's what it is. This is, this is the way we see it, you mm, know. Mm. It's just like, it's like a piece of editorial writing, you know. Yeah. You uh, were on 30 Rock many, many times uh, as, as Dr. Leo Spichemin. Uh, one of one of my favorite favorite recurring characters on there. Oh, thanks. Uh, and uh, one thing I love about he he sort of keys into a thing you're very good at playing, which is authority figures who actually have no authority. They're sort of <laughs> bluffing to yeah. to act like they do. Uh, what what draws you to that kind of character? Like like what do you enjoy about playing that kind of character? I guess I'd say it's it's to me it's just such a funny loaded setup. You know, mm-hmm. just for. You can just go so many places with that. Mm. Um, just the, the jackass who thinks they really know what they're doing, but they don't. Um, just full of bluster. And th- th- that's endlessly funny to me. I mean, mm-hmm. that's uh, that's something I hope I always get to do. But, yeah, Dr. Spichemin was perhaps the height of that, you know. That yes. was – oh, I was – I mean, I was – that's another thing I count myself as wildly lucky to have gotten to do. Do you remember a specific moment or episode of that show that you you think back on and with great fondness? I, you know, I remember. I just remember running through the halls with the with the cape on um, in the episode that was sort of a takeoff on Mozart. I remember rushing into a hospital room. I don't remember the lines, but I had blood on my coat. I'd been to a costume party, but I'd killed a dog. But it was such a it was such an interesting walk around to get to the joke because they were like they were like comedy scientists. These people, you know, mm-hmm. Tina and Robert and that team. I mean, I remember hearing a story that one time something a joke had to get cut because. I don't know, something had happened in the world or whatever. It didn't make sense. It didn't work anymore. And and Robert being like really, oh, shoot, took us took us a day and a half to, <laughs> to craft that one, you know. And I believe it, you know, because they're, they're like, they're so, they're so good at it. You mentioned uh, the idea of comedy science, and I feel like that's also true of, of Archer and Rick and Morty, where like these yeah. jokes are just out of nowhere, and yet they're perfectly structured in a way. Does knowing how a joke works, like – does that impact your ability to enjoy it at all? I know that's that answer is different for a lot of different people. No, not at all. Not <laughs> at all. Because I, I'm 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 never watching it analytically, mm. you know. Um I, I only notice if things are really stinking up the screen, you mm-hmm. know, if if something is, is terrible, well yeah, then then that's terrible and I, I probably will notice why it's terrible. But if it's funny and it's making me laugh, I'm not I'm not sitting there trying to to analyze it. I'm just enjoying it. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a, like there's a lot of great comedy on TV right now, but it's kind of a weird time in the the movie industry. Like certainly they, there are good comedies being made, but fewer and fewer of them every year, it seems. Have you, have you noticed that as well? And, and like, have, have you just sort of with the people you know and the people you talk to, do you, do you have a theory as, theories as to why that's happening? That's a really good question. I, I mean, to be honest, I hadn't noticed that, but now that you say it, I was like, yeah, that, that, that is true in terms of the movies. And, and yeah, and there, I mean, obviously there's, so much television out there and some of it is really funny and really good and um 
Yeah, with movies, I don't know what the answer to that is because, you know, I think I think because it's it's hard to write a great, you know, hour and a half comedic movie script <laughs> um, and that works and that people want to come to see. Um, you know, if you can do it and you can do it on a on a decent budget, you can make a crazy amount of money on it, you know, as a as a producer. Um but I, I think inherently that's just a that's just a hard thing to do. Mm. Um, and maybe also because movie writing tends to be more of a, you know, a solitary kind of thing uh, written by one or two people. And then, you know, it might go through some rewrites and punch ups and stuff. But I don't know. It's it, you got to have the, you got to have the great idea and you've got to be able to put it into the form of this of the script. And I guess that's a pretty hard thing to do. Uh, now, correct me if I'm wrong on this. I think Archer is the voices are recorded separately. Yeah. Um, and yet. I think it has some of the best cast chemistry on TV and always said like from day one, yeah. the chemistry was there. And I realize a lot of that's a function of editing, but like how do you play to an actor and you don't necessarily know what their read's going to be? Like how, how do you, how are you generous to an actor who's not there? <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, I, I don't honestly remember how I did it early on, but now I know I have a sense of what everybody might do mm-hmm. in the moment. You know, I know what they sound like. I know what they look like. So I sometimes will picture, you know, Lana, the animated character, you know, across the room talking to her, um, as weird as that sounds. But the other thing that helps a lot, really, is that um, there's a guy named Eric Sims on the other end of the phone line who's reading the scene with me. And then Casey Willis and Matt Thompson are there also directing. And uh, especially if it's, a, if it's a lot of dialogue, a lot of back and forth you know, then I'll, I'll end up doing the whole scene with with Eric, and mm. and that makes all the difference. Mm. Who are on these shows, uh, uh, Archer and Rick and Morty? Who are the characters you don't play that you're most amused by? Who who are sort of your your favorites that aren't you? Um, <laughs> well, I'm always amused by by uh, Pam Poovey, by Amber. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. a pretty that's a pretty fabulous character. Um, and then and Judy's character is so insane. Yeah. Um, Cheryl. Carol. I guess she's just Cheryl now. And then on Rick and Morty, I mean, you know, Rick and Morty. I mean, the you know, the whole family. And then there's so many great guest stars who come in um, <laughs> and do insane things. But really, I mean, really, let's be honest, Justin is the star of that show. I mean, he <laughs> is Rick and he's Morty and he's brilliant and he can he can do them at the same time, you know, like one after the other in sequence. And uh, it comes so naturally to him and he can just riff on it and it's it's kind of humbling to watch him do it, you know. I th- the thing about both those shows is they will do such weird things and they'll take such weird tangents and then somehow make it all very character-based. And it's so strange. Like, I don't know how they do it and, and I can't quite figure it out. How do you stay sort of grounded in a situation where like literally anything could happen? Well, you just you just you just play the moment, you know. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't see the bigger thing um, except as much as you need to to be in that moment, you mm-hmm. know. You're not thinking about the other dimensions or hmm. or you know for Jerry he's used to this these other dimensions and this insanity that that can happen at any moment with being a part of Rick's world hmm. um so he just accepts that and um he just rolls with it you know and and for Cyril uh you know it's we're not going to other dimensions um but uh you know, he's he's just there dealing with what he's dealing with in that moment. And that's, I mean, that's kind of what it, it all comes down to, I think. We, talk, we talked really early on about um, how you, you did get started out doing all sorts of theater. And you've, you're, you're kind of, you do a lot of comedy now. Do you miss doing more straightforwardly dramatic or even like tragic work? I don't. Hmm. I really don't. I, um, I'm not saying I wouldn't do it. 
But I, uh, I got to audition for uh, Homeland a couple of months ago, mm. which I was very excited. It's a great show, and I was very excited to get the chance to audition. Didn't think I was going to get it, but, you know, I gave it my best. I, you know, I worked on it, and um, I think I, I gave a respectable audition. But I also, I thought, man, this would be, you know, it would be super cool to do, but to do this kind of a part every week— mm. It's just not nearly as much fun to me as as doing a Dr. Spachemin or, you know, a Jerry or a Cyril. The comedy is just, just inherently more fun because everybody's there to make people laugh. Right. And so you're going to hopefully – you're trying to make each other laugh, not break, but, you know – you're trying to be funny, and so it's it's necessarily of a of a much lighter nature, yeah. <laughs> almost always, you know. Even in the serious moments of a sitcom or or, or one of these shows, you know, it, it it tends to only get so heavy. And if it does in those moments, that's fine. It's 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 cool to get to to go to different places emotionally. But um, but I love yeah. I mean, I love doing comedy. I I if look if I were so lucky to have the problem on, of being on a you know a, a CSI or something right. like that. Mm-hmm. Doing a procedural show like that to me, just that sounds really challenging. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, for one, think Doctor Spichemin would have fit in beautifully on Homeland. Uh, <laughs> would it, he would have been great, great in that universe. Uh, I, I ask this because uh, uh, a show you were on for for a few years, uh, Suburgatory, which I thought was a, just a fantastic little sitcom oh, on thanks. ABC, uh, had a lot of really nice dramatic moments and like kind of blended those tones well. And I feel like that's a thing that. Uh, comedy can do particularly great. Do you have like, do you have like a thing, uh, do you have like a memory of like a comedy that that sort of gut punched you when you were younger watching it where you were like, oh, comedy can also be this, you know, can also be something sort of dramatic? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I, <laughs> you know, I, w- I watched Happy Days. I loved Happy Days <laughs> and it would have its moments sometimes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd watch the love boat. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and, and that could certainly be very dramatic. Um, probably tended to be a little more dramatic than funny, I guess. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, and I, suburgatory was such a joy to do because I got to work with Anna mm-hmm. who, you know, I started out at the groundlings with, um, and then onto SNL. So we just had this, we were just like, I can't believe we're getting paid to to do these roles off of each other because we've been playing an old married couple, you know, since we were kids, and now we're really old enough to play mm-hmm. this this middle aged married couple, and uh, that was so much fun and and such such good writing, and yeah, I would have loved to have done that forever. Yeah, yeah, I was I was sad when that got canceled. Um, Thanks, but me too. W- w- what's that? Obviously, that's part of being an actor, but what like what's that experience of? This thing I was doing that I sort of invested myself in is now not there anymore. Obviously, when it's a movie or something, you know there's like a bounded right. amount of time. But a lot of times in TV, it just sort of goes away. It's not always Archer where it runs for – it's going to run for 10 years or something. Yeah, yeah no. Archer is certainly the longest run of time I've been on a show with the ex- exception of SNL, which hopefully mm-hmm. will never be canceled. You know, you just you, – you have to get used to it early on. You know, you just accept that things come and they go. And – uh, I did a I did a sitcom with uh, Paula Pell, who's one of the SNL writers, who's gone on to write movies and all kinds of great. She's amazing, and um, it was a, it was a short lived thing. We only did seven episodes, I think six or seven, and we were supposed to do thirteen. And one of the one of the producers came in and said, "Look, they're just they're cutting us back to seven episodes." And there was a young uh, actress in the in the in the ensemble who this was her first job. It was kind of a breakout role for her, and she just was 
bawling and bawling and bawling. And all the rest of us who'd been around for a while, like, you know, bummed. We were bummed, but like, oh, yeah, this is how it goes. I felt so bad for her. Mm. But, you know, I just think of that. It's like, yeah, that's what, you know, we were were all, the rest of us were jaded enough to not be, you know, to believe that this was going to actually happen. Mm. We, You know, you hope it does. You always hope it does. Um, or almost always hope it does. I guess they're, you know, you hopefully only say yes to things. Well, that's, that's, that's a, that's a point. Like when something comes your way, pilot season, if you're lucky enough to have it come your way, like an offer, which Mm -hmm. doesn't happen often for me, but occasionally does, then, you know, I have to really look at it and go, okay, do I want to do this for seven years? You know, is this something I'll enjoy playing for seven years? And, um, you know, sometimes the answer is no. And Mm -hmm. then even with auditions, you know, um, when I don't know if I'm going to get it, I look at it and say, will this be, will this be fun and fulfilling for seven years? Mm. Because if, if we get very lucky and it goes, that's, that's how long they've got me for, you know? Mm. So you kind of have to think in those terms. When you go out for auditions, do you have audition rituals? Do you have things that you, you do every time or do you just, uh, do you take it as it comes? Um, I, I mean, the only thing I just try to really have the lines down really mm-hmm. solid. Um, just so, because e- even as much as I've done it, I still can sort of, it's, I find it really hard to, to get into that moment there in the audition in the casting director's office, you know, mm-hmm. to, to all of a sudden be this character with this person who's sitting in a chair reading with you. Um, or maybe standing up and then there's a camera there and there's just other people sitting around the room. That's, that's still a challenge for me. Mm. So I just try to make sure I've got the material down as solidly as I can and then work on it a lot with my wife, mm-hmm. um, who used to, used to be an actor. Um, and that helps a lot just, just to do it over and over again, because I used to just do it by myself yeah. and that can't, that's not the same as having somebody say the lines back and, you know, forth with you. So that that has helped me a lot, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you mentioned that you've worked a lot with Anna. You've worked a lot with Will. You've worked a lot with these people. What's that relationship like, uh, you know, that's gone on for, for decades? Like that working relationship that's inconstant but often enough that you're like, oh, okay, it's, it's good to see you again, you know? Oh, it's just great, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so comfortable. Hmm. Um, it's just you know, such an ease about it, you know, um, that was, that was one of the things with Suburgatory with Anna. I was just like, we're so comfortable and it's so easy around each other, you know, I know we have to, we have to do a makeout thing. Like, okay, who cares? You know, mm-hmm. this is, this is not a big deal. I'm, I'm comfortable. I've known you for like 20 years now almost, you know, or maybe more. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a certain comfort and a certain ease, you know, and, and also, you know, who that person is, mm-hmm. who they are as a person, you know, so you're not, you're not skittish about like, what kind of a character, what kind of a human being is this that I'm working with, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. um, I don't, I don't have to worry if they're a weirdo, mm-hmm. you know, or if, if they're going to be an, an asshole or something, you know. As you kind of look back on your, your, the, your career, uh, what's sort of some advice that you now know that you wish you could give to your, uh, you know, 20 year old self? I mean, I kind of was back then, but just, you know, just be brave, be, be bold and, and believe in yourself, you know, be confident in, mm-hmm. in your abilities while also, you know, I, I, I was, I was not nearly as good as I thought I was when I got out of college. Yeah. Um, I got going on a, a few auditions sort of taught me that my friend Dietrich Bader, who had, left school before me and had just started to work in, you know, in Hollywood immediately. And he got me 
I think it was him. He got me a pretty good audition with a, a big casting director. And, and her note was afterwards was, you need to get a lot more experience. Mm. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I was this, you know, I was kind of full of myself. I mean, I hopefully wasn't too big of an asshole, but I, you know, I was coming out of drama school, done some big roles, you know, it was pretty, pretty hot stuff, you know, mm. and then come out here to Hollywood and like, no, you're, you're super small potatoes. You mm. Know? Mm. When you look at uh, some of the younger uh, comedians or younger uh, comedic actors now who are just sort of starting to break through, who are, who are some folks that make you laugh that you think are, are going to have great careers? Well, there's so many of the, of the folks on SNL. Um, there's actually a screening tonight of a, a film that Kyle Mooney did, mm. um, Grigsby Bear, I think it's called. Um, I should know the name of it. I, I'm not going to be able to go because I have an, an, an infant son and a three-year-old. But um, I think Kyle's fantastic. Um, um, and, 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 you know, Bobby Moynihan, I mean, all the guys on there. Uh, I mean, not that they're really breaking out per se. And then the women are amazing. You know, they're all so good. I don't see stand-up. I don't mm-hmm. go out to comedy clubs. So I, I have no perspective on that. Um Although I will say, I think this Louis C.K. guy has a lot of promise. <laughs> I do like his comedy. And this Amy Schumer gal, I don't know if you've heard of her. Um, and then, you know, the the, the gals from uh, Broad, Broad City, yeah. are they're so freaking amazing. You know, mm. they're so good. Um, yeah, there's, there's so many people out there. I mean, but most of the people I'm going to say are people that are already really yeah. out there. So <laughs> yeah. I'm, you know. Did you ever have that stand-up bug? Did you ever have a thing where you're like, I want to, I want to try this? Not remotely. <laughs> never, never any part of me that wanted to do that. No. Do you miss the the live audience? I mean, uh, it sounds like you really came up with that audience aspect of the shows. I don't. Mm. I don't miss the live audience, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I I've done a couple of little shows, like fundraiser shows for the Groundlings over the last couple of years. Um, and that was fun, you know, that was, that was great. And that was, that was nice. And to, and to hear the audience there and that sort of thing. But, um, like say if, would I prefer to do a single camera sitcom or a multi-camera sitcom where, you know, with multi-camera, there's almost always a live audience there. There are multi-cams without an audience, but, um, I, I prefer not having the audience there because, when the audience is there, there's a certain expectation uh, that you're going to land a joke in a certain way, or there's there's a certain sort of energy that you have to bring to it. Mm-hmm. So the people in the room with you're like, ah, <laughs> and and when you're doing a, a single camera, there's not that expectation. It's just you're in the moment, you're mm-hmm. acting a scene, and 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 hopefully, if you do it right and it's written well, it will be funny, you know, or and it will or will be moving, you know. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I, I feel like that's kind of sacrilegious to say, but I, I don't miss the live audience now. Uh, we're heading into the end here, but, uh, just to return to Archer for a second, I want to ask you, you did mention this is kind of the longest you've been with a character. What, what about Cyril still surprises you, uh, eight seasons in? (laughs) Um, I guess how, how awful he can be, (laughs) (laughs) you know, how, uh, that's, that's certainly what I'm, I'm discovering this season, you know, just how, uh. What a, what a what a bad dude he can be! How self centered he can be, and 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 just you know, full of his own self interest, you know, with with no regard for for other life. Yeah, <laughs> um, I guess that would be the, the main thing. Uh, at the end of the show, we ask everybody some of the same questions, uh, so I'm going to ask them of you as well. Um, who is the actor you've learned the most from that you've never worked with or met? I guess Daniel Day Lewis, mm. mm. um, just because he is he's sort of the at the pinnacle of mm-hmm. what great acting can be. Yeah. He 
just becomes other beings, you know. <laughs> and when I was in high school and college, that's what I aspired to do. <laughs> and then, you know, uh, the reality of the world is that you're kind of people are going to see you a certain way and you're going to kind of be that way unless you're as brilliant as Daniel Day-Lewis or Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he's he's always extraordinary and, you know, I will never be able to do what he does. And frankly, I'm too lazy to work as hard as he does <laughs> to come up with a different voice, to come up to find this voice for Abraham Lincoln. Like, what the hell? And, oh, yeah, that sounds right. You know, I mean, it's different. It's not what I would have thought immediately, but it, it works, you mm. know. Yeah. Mm. Genius. Uh, what's the last uh, piece of pop culture? It could be a movie, TV show, book, song that you have consumed, and what did you think of it? Um, my wife got me the first Jack Reacher novel, mm-hmm. um, Killing Floor, for my birthday, uh, and I just I read that pretty quickly, um, and it was a blast. You know, it was a really it was a really fun read. I mean, this is this is an old book at this point. I think um, I've, I'd seen the Jack Reacher movies and quite enjoyed them. Um, and while Tom Cruise is not who you picture when you read the book, um, I, I think he's great in it. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it was, it's 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 well written. You know, it's it's um, Lee Child, the writer, knows what he's doing. I mean, he's 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 got the knack, and it's a fun read. Uh, what are you looking forward to? Well, I'm looking forward to finding out if this show that I did the pilot for is going to get picked up. And what's that? Well, it's it's the the pilot is actually it's a backdoor pilot. It's an mm. episode of Blackish that's going to okay. be on uh, next Wednesday. Mm. Um, and if the network deems sees fit, then you know hopefully we'll get to do more of this of the spinoff of Blackish. Mm. Um, I probably shouldn't be talking about it. It's probably bad luck. <laughs> uh, I probably just cursed it. Sorry, everybody. Yeah, I mean, I I really would love to see that go because I I love doing it, and that would be. That would be awesome. Um, hopefully, I'm not jinxing it. Mm. I'm looking forward to uh, my six-week-old getting a little older um, <laughs> so that my, my wife is freed up a little bit from breastfeeding duties um, so that we can we can hang out a little more. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's like such a precious time, and he's, it's, he's so freaking adorable and cute and his little hands and feet. And, you know, so you want to enjoy it. You don't want to rush through it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same with my three-year-old. I'm like, okay, well, maybe you can go ahead and be four, you know, like I want you to get through this stage. But, you know, you, you got you to gotta be present for that too. And because mm-hmm. there's still a, a lot of a lot of good times. And finally, uh, you can interpret this however you want, something that inspired you, something that you return to over and over again. But what is the uh, greatest uh, piece of culture or art that you have uh, ever seen or read or heard? I mean, I guess the greatest piece of culture would would probably be Starry Night, you know, Mm, Um, Mr. Van Gogh. Um, uh, You know, so I always go to see that if I'm I'm at uh, the MoMA. Mm -hmm. And... uh, I mean, Chariots of Fire is my favorite movie. I'll go back and watch that every few years. I find that very moving um, and powerful. But, I mean, fine art, painting and photography and that kind of thing, I, I get a lot uh, a lot from, and that really feeds me. So, like, maybe even today, um, I, I might stop by LACMA. Mm-hmm. That's, like, one of my favorite things to do is just go and have a bite to eat, have a couple of drinks, and look at art. And mm-hmm. uh, it's... It's just so wonderful, you know, especially when they've got a show up that I'm excited to see. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, Chris. Thank you. uh, You can see Archer on FXX, and Rick and Morty will be back in the summer on Adult Swim.
I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf. In case you haven't guessed, that's me. And we're going to be reading you some closing credits. So I hope you're looking forward to that. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishat Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. This logo design was from Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulreich. Our production coordinator is Paige Bethman. Audio engineering and post-production are courtesy of P3 Post. The studio we recorded in this week is the wonderful Village Workspaces podcast studio in Santa Monica, California. Our editor is Peter Leonard, and our recording engineer this week was Che Brooks. I'll be back next week with another interview with someone from the world of arts and entertainment who I think is pretty interesting. Until then, if you find yourself in a 1940s dream coma, make sure to find all your friends and try to solve the mystery that's holding you all there. See you then. Mm-hmm.